Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We're excited to announce our latest podcast launching this week called Behind the Billions. Coming from the two co-creators of Billions, Brian Koppelman and David Levine give a behind-the-scenes look into Billions Season 5. Following each episode's airing on Showtime, the podcast will unpack the writing of the script, exclusive stories from production, interviews with cast and crew, and much more. The first episode is out now, so make sure to subscribe to Behind the Billions on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm asking how you want to carry this. You want to get out? You want to do something else with the rest of your years? You come see me. It might be tomorrow, might not be for a while. But when you think you're ready for something different, you give me a call. I'll remember. Motherfucker thinking he can pimp me over a candy bar. We are at episode seven, season one, one arrest. A lot goes down in this. Um, I think, Van, since we started doing these, I feel like this might be the one with the most filedest away for later. Uh, a lot of those moments that were in this one. But first, what was your biggest takeaway from one arrest? The cops are starting to get their shit together now. The cops are finally applying the pressure to where the Barksdale organization is going to have to respond to them. You know, you, you first come out and the cops are jabbing, they're jabbing, they're jabbing. And the Barksdales, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they're moving, they're parrying. But like, it, it's the early rounds. This is now, we're in the middle rounds of it because in a, in a, in a huge fight, no matter who the aggressor is, there's always a point where the opponent has to adjust to what the other person is doing offensively. This is the one where we finally see that the Barsdales have to react and change up to what the cops are doing. The cops are starting to have some success, and now we got to see if Avon and them um, can adjust to that and keep their business flowing the way that it is. I'm digging the uh, boxing analogy because I would think um, up until this point, um, I don't know who I would have said. I would have definitely put the Barksdales ahead in terms of winning this, you know, winning this war right now. Not just because they're not shut down, but it's because I think up until now, the cops had largely been thinking about this in a very systematic way. Mm. And one of the takeaways I have from this episode is that they start to see some success when they start kind of going outside of what is the normal way to operate uh, in terms of trying to bring down an organization of this magnitude, uh, what they do with Stinkum, for example, when they decide to let Kevin Johnson or when they decide to let Stinkum go and they're just kind of laying a trap. You know, they're playing. Uh, I think the Barksdale crew was very good at playing like a Floyd Mayweather like defense mm-hmm. up until now. But finally, the cops are starting to hit back a little bit. And so it's feeling like this is going to be a real matchup because I think if you had never. If you had not been watching The Wire and had never seen it before now, then you would have gotten to this point and said, you know, I, I think the Barksdales are going to they're gonna probably be OK. Like you liked your odds of being like, eh, I don't know if the cops have it in them to be able to break down this um, organization. And so what we finally see is the cops are starting to strike back in a way that's causing discomfort uh, to the Barksdale organization, because now they are forced to do things outside of this system that they have in place. And I think that's what's been kind of impressive really about the Barksdale organization, just as an organization, 
you have to admit, like from a rule standpoint, like this is a this is a pretty tight ship. Mm-hmm. Like they got shit down. You know, Weebay knows the rules, as we saw in previous episodes, as he's trying to school D'Angelo. They don't talk on the phone. They don't they like they do their business a certain way. Um, and even in this, we see more rules that even Omar knows what their rules are about not getting high, about ne- never carrying um, when they're on their particular territory. Like they have um, a level of organization that we don't even have in our in our um, legitimate systems of government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for that, I kind of admired him for that. So that was sort of one of my takeaways or one of my biggest takeaways is that yeah. they have to disrupt what was, I think, a pretty tight operation that they had going. And you know what? Something else about that I thought about, I thought about American Gangster when I was watching this. You know what I mean? Because everyone has a system of rules, but the system of rules doesn't help you necessarily win. Every drug organization, every organization has a system of rules. It's not necessarily to help you win. It's really to help you hide, right? So like under scrutiny, it always all falls apart. I, I think about the scene where... Frank wore uh, the fur coat to the fight, right? It wasn't that Frank Lucas, that his system was so airtight that everything, it was that it was clandestine. It was that no one really knew who he was. Why? By the time the scrutiny gets on you, the government has enough resources to always pull you out of what you are. That's when you find out whether or not your rules and whether or not your organization really works is when they know who you are, when your name is in that little photo at the top of that pyramid. And that lesson about whether or not these things are actually going to work, this episode, One Arrest, um, is the episode where we start to see if they can adjust to what the police, uh, adjust to the pressure the cops are putting on them. Well, and and then just to show the level of this i mean really in i mean this is this kind of shows kind of the level of disrespect that the barksdales have for the police in general it never occurs to them that this could be pressure coming from the police mm-hmm. they have been trying to weed out a snitch that isn't there right right that's they've spent a lot of time and energy game planning trying to fit, find out who's the snitch because surely the cops they're not that smart like they clearly are coming from the this this perspective that they have one up the cops and they will continue to do so. And at the end of the day, because the cop system is so fucked up, it could never operate on a functional level to take them down, which is, you know, kind of cost them valuable time and changing up their operation. Because by the time they change it up, the cops are already largely onto them and have figured out their system. Like a wiretap never occurs to them as a possible source of intel. And, and, and we see some cracks in the organization too, right? When Kevin Johnson... Um, and I love that that's the kid's name. I know, KJ. right? Did you immediately think about I, like Phoenix Suns, Kevin Johnson? You know what happens to me? This happens to me. So when I see his name is Kevin Johnson, I go, oh, damn. I haven't thought about KJ in a while. And then I have to go on YouTube and look at KJ dunk over you Elijah Wan. Yeah, like, you it just, it, you it, have it, to look at the dunk. Yeah, I'm like, man, look, Van, get back on what you're doing, bro. You got a job to do. Um, no, the first thing I thought of, too, I was like, damn, remember that time when KJ yoked on Elijah Wan? Yeah, yeah that, was, that, was, way, that was good times. KJ was ill. Like, 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 like uh, KJ? Underrated. We don't talk, talk about KJ that much. KJ was ill. <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah, so you start to see them fuck up a little bit, right? Because after, uh, uh, after Kevin Johnson, they, they, they take the pack, they take the re-up, they leave Stink, Stink gets on the, Stinkum gets on the phone immediately, 
uh, makes the call to Stringer. Um, I believe it's Stringer, and starts like using names. He immediately yeah, it is Stringer, yeah. he immediately mm-hmm. gets frazzled, right? And then later on in the episode, for no reason, something else that happens. You just see the Barksdale makes the Barksdales make some mistakes. Um, uh, the eternal fuck up of the show up there on a Ziggy season two level fuck up of the show, uh, Orlando, he starts fucking up. And so you kind of start to see the little, not so much the, the, the cracks in the Barstow organization, um, from a structural standpoint, but just from a, a functionality standpoint, you start seeing that there are some vulnerabilities there that the cops might be able to take advantage of. All right. Well, let's uh, break down, give people a a quick recap of what happens in this episode. So Judge Phelan, a friend of Jimmy McNulty and friend, I guess, of the major case um, unit that is going after the Barksdales. He gives them additional time on the wire, which is a a, a good and significant development for them. Um, And as we see, he is quite a quite a little crush on on Rhonda. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Quite a little crush. He says one of the funniest quotes in the episodes, uh, which we'll get to later when we go over uh, some of the funny lines from this episode. McNulty and Bunt, they have an eyewitness, an older woman to gather more evidence on Bird killing state will, uh, state witness William Gant, who, uh, if people recall, uh, that's kind of how this season kicks off, is uh, William Gant made the mistake of seeing D'Angelo murder somebody in the high rises. And just to send a message, uh, Avon had him killed and Bird was the one who did it. Um, the police also take down Bird on Omar's intel and get him with the gun that he used to murder Gantt. So now they have a case. Now they have a solid case against Bird. As we just talked about a minute ago, the police, they switch up their tactics. Stinkham will have a runner with him. The runner's going to be holding the package. When you get him, ride the bumper. So he knows we're there. Right. Lay on a blue light if you need it. Now the runner's going to bolt. I got the runner. You stay with Stinkham. No. I got the runner. He takes Stink. No. You both take the runner. And Stink gets away. Nobody gets away. But we pull in Stink on a car stop now, we got to give up PC, which means we got to give up the wire. We just set this whole thing up for two days worth of coke bows, did we? You snatch the runner, we stick a hook in him and go back to the fishing hole. And between the wiretap and the runner bolting from the truck, we got to charge on Stinkum anytime we want it. They purposely let Stinkum go. You know, Stinkum, one of their main lieutenants, He's in the car with Kevin Johnson, who has the re-up package, which is worth, I believe they said, 40 grand. Uh, They uh, purposely let Stinkum go. They catch Kevin Johnson with the point of maybe trying to apply some different pressure points. You know, they've been trying to do other tactics to try to bring more pressure to the organization. And this one, they decide to do it another way by letting one of their lieutenants go. And as a result, the Barksdales have to sit there and think about it um, as to why would the police ever have let go a lieutenant? They have him nailed dead to right, as they say, and they are trying to figure out what goes on. Um, We also see, uh, you know, the kind of the continuing, um, you know, the continuing fall of Wallace. Bodie asked Poot where what's up with Wallace. And he's like, I don't know. He in the wind, yo. Wallace been fucked up since they got that sticker boy, you know? Put him on a car like that. Wallace all quiet and shit. Don't even come out of his room some days. He says everything but he's getting high. 
another development in this is that Rawls is pressing Santangelo for dirt on McNulty. Clearly, just the idea that McNulty has forced them to do actual police work has <laughs> so pissed off Rawls that he has made it his life mission to ruin Jimmy McNulty. And McNulty, once he gets wins of this, he has to go through a come to Jesus moment with himself about this job and what his love for his job and love for doing his job actually well may cost him in the long run run in terms of his career. So of course, every episode, they're providing always snapshots into, into people's lives. But I think we get an even deeper look into one of our favorite characters, definitely Van's favorite character, maybe not his favorite, but I, I assume he's in your top five and he's not five. To quote you, the Tony Stark of snitches, um, <laughs> the best snitch of all time in television history. Uh, we're going to take a deep dive into Bubbles, played by the wonderful Andre Royo. So what is it about Bubbles, Van, that you feel like, um, you know, I think you called him early on. You called him the conscience of this show in many respects, despite the fact that he has this life that is, you know, out of control. He's an addict. He's had a lot going on. So what is it about Bubbles that you think really resonates and really brings the wire even more to life than some of the other characters? Um, Bubbles is the character from my life that I knew the best. Uh, we, I, we talked a little bit about this, but, you know, we, for a long time in society, we had a certain view of addiction and we looked at addiction as a personal failing. We looked at addiction um, as something that signaled weakness in people, that signaled deficit um, in people, defect in people. Uh, and when you look at Bubbles, just the, I, I can't say enough about the job that Andre Royal did with the character. I just can't. A anytime light creeps out from the, the, the end of the tunnel, Bubbles sticks his hand out for it. Anytime there's a crack of light, anytime there's a chance uh, that he can even see um, what a, a, a holistic, uh, beautiful, addiction-free existence would look like. He throws himself at it. And we see it in this episode. Johnny gets cracked. Uh, his his the, 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 the Robin to his heroine, crackhead Batman gets cracked. They get Johnny out. Johnny has to go to meetings. And in these meetings, one of the most fantastic characters in Wire history, Waylon, we finally meet Waylon in this episode, played by Steve Earle. Well, hell, y'all. I know I'm Waylon, and I'm an addict. Hey, and the fact is that I want to be clean today more than I want to be high. I know that's all right. It's good to be here. It's good to be anywhere clean. Even Balmer. Who, in his real life, fantastic musician dealt with addiction himself so he he's playing a version of himself that's so true to him um that it comes across uh in his character we see bubbles looks looking around and while johnny is trying to uh use this as a scam just to get back on the street just to get high you see bubbles feeling something he feels that it's possible see what happens when you get into the dregs of addiction is being, and that's when this happens when you get into the dregs of anything, right? Like uh, I'm dealing with anxiety with everything that's going on right now. And sometimes when you're in the middle of it, you never see yourself becoming normal again. 
you think this is the way that it goes. And that in and of itself will stop you from taking the steps treatment-wise that you need to in order to get to where it is that you need to go. So when Bubbles is in the middle of this, you can see in the portrayal, in the character, that he doesn't think what he's watching is possible. It's been so long since he's actually tried it, right? It's been so long since he's actually made the effort to access it. Um, And it's really the beginning of a journey. Uh, And it's very powerful to me to watch, man. It's very powerful to me to watch this character who we see in a lot of different ways exhibit all kind of control. He has control in the way he delivers information to the police. He has control in the schemes uh, that he he pulls off in order to get the money that he needs to get the drugs that he's hooked to. Uh, But he submits. He submits a little bit to something that's inside of himself, something that wants a better life. Um, And it's just in this particular episode and over the course of the series, just watching that level of humanity, man, bravo to Burns and Simon and bravo to Andre Royo because it's a very affecting portrayal. So a couple interesting things to note about this character is um, like a lot of characters in The Wire, um, pretty much all of them, they're based off real people or composites of real people. And Bubbles was based off an addict that Ed Burns, who is the co-partner with David Simon, that he knew in real life. Um, and he, there is a real life Bubbles. And he was, when Ed Burns was a homicide detective, he was his number one snitch. And that's exactly what he calls him in his uh, in Jonathan Abrams' oral history of The Wire, All the Pieces Matter, which we refer to a lot in this podcast because it's kind of the dis- definitive Bible on everything um, Wire. So um, Lieutenant Daniels, uh, he was the one who originally they wanted to play Bubbles because physically that's what Bubbles looks like. And that's why they were looking at him, Lance Reddick, as the person to play um, bubbles, but Andre Royo, um, he told he tells a lot of fascinating stories, and all the pieces matter about how he stayed in character, about how he uh, prepped for this role. Uh, he did not know it was a real life bubbles until ac- after he already started playing him, and he was uh, he he said he was a little basically annoyed with Ed Burns that he didn't tell him. He was like, "Oh, I would have asked you about more research," and he was like, "For what?" He's like, "You played him perfectly, and you didn't even you know know who he was," but. Andre Royal, I get he tells this fascinating story about how he knew he had really nailed this character. Uh, he called it um, the day he received his street Oscar and they were shooting a scene and um, he was sitting on the bench. He didn't have, you know, any any lines. And it was when he was um, trying to stay clean and he was waiting on Kima to call him. And this happens like later on. And as he was walking back to his trailer, a real life junkie came up to him and told him, Hey, they giving out testers over there. Damn. And then he shook his hand. Right. And he, they shook his hand. Um, and then uh, the real life addict, when he shook his hand, he gave him something. And when Andre Royal looked in his hand, it was actually drugs. So he thought he was he was that realistic to him that he thought he was really, you know, an addict. What a magnanimous, unbelievably selfless dope thing. I know, man. right? <laughs> like you like what a wait, wait, we gotta uh, Andre, if you're listening to this, we gotta find that guy. What a great dude. 
I, I, what a great human being. Yeah, I, I, I used to be very overweight. I never had another fat person walk up to me and go, hey, man, McDonald's got the bomb chicken nuggets today. Have one. What I'm, that's a, that's a, okay, what a fantastic, but yeah, you got to be real to carry it like that, but I, I'm interested. No, in this. you're right. Yeah. I mean, that was an, an incredible, I mean, it's it's deep and dark, but that's an incredible show of humanity. It's like to share yeah. in these moments. He's like, I see a fellow addict. We are of the same tribe. Let me share a vial with you. <laughs> but here's the crazy part of this story, right? I haven't even gotten to the, um, I guess if you want to call it a punchline, though, it's not, it's like one of those funny, not funny. So, he, Andre Royal, was so taken aback that this happened. He thought it was so cool and he thought he was so awesome. And he thought to himself, you know, I am playing an addict. Maybe if I really want to oh, know Jesus how this Christ, feels, Andre, don't. maybe Uh-oh. I should do it Andre. just to figure out what it is that has hooked this character on this drug. And he said he legitimately thought about actually taking it and then you know, better sense prevailed. And he was just like, all right, I might really for real fuck myself up with this. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, I might not be able to perform. But yes, it did actually go through his mind that maybe he should try it for real um, to experience the high. Yeah, see, I'm, yeah, okay. I'm glad we're talking about this. Because, <laughs> but, because I know, I'm glad we're talking about this. I'll tell you why. A lot, a lot of people that not, are, are not like from the town, we talked a little bit about earlier how, uh, you know, the couch, they ended up, they had a couch. They ended up paying for a couch. That's the most Hollywood thing ever. There still are things about the wire that would be Hollywood. If you guys find it hard to believe that an actor would consider taking actual heroin to play a dope thing, it, you don't have any actor friends. They're willing to do the dumbest shit. I just, I just gotta like, like Andre. I love you. I'm glad you didn't take the heroin because, like, it, it just actors out there, listen. Sometimes use your imagination. Actors don't actually take the heroin. I can't, I, bruh. I had a homie. I'm not gonna name this guy. He's playing a gangbanger in the movie. Hits me up. Like, yo, man. I know you cool with so and so. You think I could get put on for a couple of days so I can get down there and really know what it's like? I'm like, no. You don't. They don't put you on for a couple of days, dummy. <laughs> what? You don't. You can't. You want to be a part timer? Yeah, you can't a go. Seasonal gang yeah, member. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. You can't be a gang member for the Memorial Day weekend. Stupid. No, I'm not making that call. Don't take the heroin. But fantastically, uh, it, it still ended up that Andre Royal did a fantastic job. I'm glad he didn't take the heroin though. Well, and the person, I guess, as a, as a as an aside, um, the person who taught Johnny. Um, uh, to shoot up correctly, as in, you know, not that they were actually shooting up, but at least make it look like he was doing it like a real addict, was uh, actually um, somebody on set because um, he, you know, he was really trying to get that part down packed. And even though he knew some, um, you know, some addicts, you know, he didn't know how to shoot up properly. And so somebody on set who had dealt with a heroin addiction actually showed him how to do that. But getting back to um, Bubbles um, as a character, I, I think I mean, I'm I'm sure I mentioned this before um, on the the podcast. But the the attic scenes are the toughest ones for me to watch, mm. and uh, my family history is why. You know, as I've said, I'll bear repeating for those who might be new. My father is a recovering heroin addict. My mother is a recovering drug addict as well. She tried a lot of drugs, and she was addicted um, mostly to pain pills, and so. I've had conversations with them. They've been tough about 
some of the things that they did while they were an addict. And while I see, you know, a theme of The Wire is Johnny and Bubbles doing these like completely stupid things just to get drugs. Um, but, you know, my mother has told me some stories, not necessarily about her stealing copper as Johnny and Bubbles, have, uh, you know, did in the last episode, but just things that she did just to try to get drugs. And so when I see that and particularly this meeting scene, because as they're sharing some of their, you know, kind of darkest and deepest emotions, it reminded me um, a lot of what recovery was like for, you know, my parents and my father. He went from, you know, being an addict to actually working uh, as a clinical drug therapist, he went back. He got his bachelor's, and so he worked with, works with addicts all the time. And oh, wow. those kind of meetings that Waylon was leading are were pretty much his life for like twenty plus years, and he retired a, a few years ago. So for me, it was just kind of always tough to watch those scenes in, in The Wire because it reminded me of, of my parents. I, my father was not really in my life when he went through his addiction, so I didn't, I didn't. Um, thankfully have an up close view. I had a very up close, upfront, um, horrific view of what my mother went through. And so when I see Bubs or when I see Johnny or when they deal with the addiction elements in this series, it always reminds me of that. And I can tell people based off what I know to be an addict's life because I lived with one, um, you know, for a huge chunk of my life. This is as an accurate portrayal as you can possibly uh, imagine. The stops and starts, the... Um, you know, even Waylon made a, a mention about uh, hepatitis, about hep C. My mother contracted hep C. Mm. And so those are things that, you know, the damage done to their bodies and how he was talking about how people were cursing, you know, their names. Those are things that I personally saw, you know, my mother go through. And so uh, the accuracy of it and I think um, the fact that Steve Earle's particular past is this, but the accuracy of how they portray addiction is really unbelievable. And they're able to portray it, Bubbles in particular, um, since we're talking about him. Bubbles is able to portray addiction in a way where you get a panoramic view. And this is not just about, um, oh, you know, it's not just about addicts being awful people. This is about how something, when it takes control and seizes you and gets a grip on you, the choices you may make, the things you may do, the destruction that you will cause your own person. It's just so much to unpack there that it's not as black and white as people would. I think sometimes how addicts are portrayed on screen. So the realism and the humanity and the conscience that Bubbles has, because even though he's out here trying to scrape, survive, trying to get the next hit, um, he still is a good person. And yeah. I, he's still a really good person. It's just that he's battling something that's so much bigger than him. But even in that battle, it doesn't, he loses himself in terms of he's, you know, he's lost a lot of things due to addiction, but he doesn't like lose himself. And I, I appreciated that part of it. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 there's a thing if you're kind of not familiar with it, where people stop being human, they lose aspects of their personality that makes make them human right so we're we we talk about addiction to other things in all kinds of ways um and it doesn't seem as destructive and it doesn't seem as dehumanizing right if someone is addicted to excellence or if someone is a addicted to even sports i know people right now that because sports are down they really can't function they don't they don't understand how to make their days work 
without the Lakers or the Clippers. If it's the Clippers, you know, feel sorry for you. But like they don't know how to make their days work without these things. It it that we have addictive components to our brains. A lot of us do. And it just depends on the way that you choose to express those things. And it seems as if the more destructive those things are to your life, the more judgment society then heaps on you. It's interesting that Bubbles' character connects to another scene in this, which I'm just going to touch on real quickly. And we'll talk about the scene a little bit more. Wallace, we see Wallace get high for the first time uh, in this show. And there's this, this, prevailing thought that goes around with people that goes, yo, like we know how messed up crack is. We know how messed up heroin is. We know how messed up X amount of drug is. Like, why would you try it? Like, why would you, like who thought today was the day I was going to try and smoke crack? Think about the situation that Wallace is in, in this episode. Think about what he's seen, the reality he's trying to escape and the reality that he lives in every single day. If there was a little bit of magic dust right now that could take him away from that reality, if there was a little bit of magic dust that could take a lot of us away from the reality right now that we're in, a lot of people will probably try it. And so when I watch that scene with Wallace and I see him get high and kind of nod off, I think about what must have been happening with Bubbles the first time, for whatever reason, that he decided to to chain himself um to the rock that was going to pull him to the bottom of the ocean for so long in his life. Uh, and this is kind of, I'm glad we did this deep dive on him because he is the character that no matter what else happens in the show, I, I'm, I'm just happy that we were able to witness uh, his growth over the course of the series. Yeah. One of the issues that uh, Kima um, had, or uh, Sonia San, um, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, that she had with the show and her and uh, David Simon and Burns, you know, there was some conflict there in season one. One of the issues she had is that she thought it was a show with no hope. Um, But even though there is not always a happy ending in every episode that relates to Bubbles, he still does give, I think, more hope than we think. And we see a lot of that um, in this episode in that because his the hope is in he, in his humanity. I mean, I would only lose hope in Bubbles if he were doing things that show that he had completely and so given into drugs that he wasn't even able to be a human being. Because even with Johnny, even with his friendship with Johnny, he knows Johnny is a fuck up. Mm-hmm. He knows Johnny... Being friends with Johnny is not ultimately not good for him. And yet Johnny is in a, a tight spot here. He gets nabbed for possession for the 5011th time. Mm-hmm. And Bubs uses his connect, Kima, at the, you know, within uh, the major crimes unit to get to stall his boy out. Now, he could have left him in there. He could have just been like, I'm just about me. Fuck him. He fucked up, whatever. But there is something in Bubbles that always wants you know the best for Johnny and he's always trying to help Johnny even though he knows helping Johnny is ultimately not good for him so they have a a bit of a twisted friendship but I think the fact that Bubs has a you know like a no child left behind kind of mentality Mm kind of speaks to um, just who he is as a person and I think regardless of the situation that Bubs found himself in over the course of this series he always managed to remind you that he was still a human being. And that makes it 
such a brilliant character. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more Way Down in the Hole. Yep. Hey, this is Brian Koppelman. And this is David Levine. We are the showrunners and co-creators of Billions. And this is... Behind the Billions. Behind the Billions. Where we're going to talk about how we make the show, the decisions we made in terms of uh, what we decided to shoot, how we wrote it. We are going to share the inside skinny on what it's like to make the show. Uh, Dave, I'm sorry I just said inside skinny. You did. I mean, you've set the bar high. We have a lot to provide now. And we will be providing it on Sunday nights right after the show. We'll have guests who are actors on the show will come in and talk to us, people who make cameos on the show. Should we interview crew members too? Well, we're going to talk about some crew members, maybe standout crew members, superstars, crew superstars, if you will. Really psyched to do this, psyched to talk to everybody about the show. Listen in on Sunday nights right after the show airs on Showtime. All right, well, let's... um get into some of the best scenes from episode seven. Since we just talked about it, I guess I'll start there. The 12 step scene to me was mm. the the most powerful scene in, in this episode. Um, Waylon's testimony, powerful, real. I've been cleaned a few 24 hours now and I'm still dead certain that my disease wants me dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm in here with y'all talking shit about how strong I am, how strong I feel. But my disease is out there in that parking lot doing push-ups on steroids waiting for the chance to kick my ass up and down the street again. Yeah. Yeah. Scars on my hands, on my feet, two bouts of endocarditis. Hep C and whatnot, knocking down walls and kicking out windows in the liver. I lost a good wife, bad girlfriend, <laughs> and the respect to anyone that ever tried to loan me money or do me a favor. Palm my pickup, my bike, my national steel guitar, and a stamp collection that my granddad left me. And when it was almost over for me, and I was out there on them corners, not a pot to piss in, and anyone that ever knew me or loved me cussing my name, you know what I told myself? I said, Waylon, you're doing good. <laughs> I surely did. I, I thought I was God's own drug addict, and if God hadn't meant for me to get high, he wouldn't have made being high so much like perfect. The fact that this clearly sparked something in Bubs um, in terms of thinking about his own mortality, his own life, uh, as you said so well, I don't think that Bubs had seen it's it's almost like he hadn't seen recovering addicts. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's like, oh, people actually get out of this. Like mm -hmm. he was he was just so you could tell by just like he had this wide eyed kind of look to him just looking around and just saying like, wait, all these people actually are getting clean. They're actually trying that there's it felt like the first time he experienced and knew that there was light at the end of a dark tunnel that he had been in. So it's a moment of self-realization that I think is very powerful um, in all the pieces manner. Uh, you know, uh, Steve Earle talks about the authenticity of the meetings and how that was really important for him. Uh, he's been clean and sober since 1994. And so it meant a lot to him that they portray that correctly um, and that it not get the Hollywood glamour treatment of how these 12 step meetings kind of come off. And so um, I thought that, you know, they nailed the scene in so many ways and gave 
a, not just humanity to bubbles and him realizing how he could possibly overcome his problem. But by hearing the various stories and the, the realism from the addicts there, I thought that it really gave uh, a different view of this addiction issue overall. So that was probably my favorite scene. Yeah, I have a couple of great scenes in here. Obviously, the the, the bubble scene um, to, to everything we just spoke to is the most moving scene for me of the episode. But a couple of other ones are good, too. Uh, Presbaluski looking at Kevin Johnson after knowing that he blinded him. Uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of times, and the the it, we we talk about things like police brutality and uh, you know issues that um, rip the community away from the police force that is supposed to serve and protect it. Uh, you have Presbaluski, who was a character that did something so abhorrent, right? So terrible. He blinded a young black kid. He blinded him. He took it. He took an eye from him. Over the course of the couple of episodes after that happens, things happen for Presbaluski. At the very beginning of this episode, Presbaluski is the guy that's explaining to the rest of the dudes that uh, he understands how to listen to the speech that's coming from the, the the kids in the pit and in the low rises, right? And it's a it's a victorious moment for him the character starts to do a rehabilitation, right? But one amazing thing about The Wire is the show never heals the scars of its characters. It reminds the characters of the scars and it reminds the audience of what those characters have done as well. And in that particular scene, when Presbaluski has to see the kid that he blinded, you remember that guy did something so fucking terrible and it's staring him right in his face. Uh, what? It's him. Who? I just thought it was very, very powerful. And then, as always, Daniels has to go out and try to make it work for one of his guys. Motherfucker can't even look at me. Let's say we start over on this. Start over? My lawyer said I got a case against y'all for this shit. Fuck the lawyers. I'm trying to talk about life here, Kevin. The game already cost you, right? More than it should have, I know. Whose fault is that? His. Ours. Mine, maybe. Thing is, I feel like I owe you something here. So I'm asking how you want to carry this. You want to get out? You want to do something else with the rest of your years? You come see me. Even in a situation like that, Daniels has to try to make it work for one of his guys. I love that scene. Well, isn't it interesting that Prez, well, what what also struck me, everything you said, I, I had those same thoughts, but what also struck me is that Prez had the nerve to be uncomfortable. Yeah. You was the motherfucker that hit him with a gun. Yeah. If anybody should be uncomfortable, it should be Kevin Johnson. Yeah. And he had the nerve to actually, he had the nerve to, um, to to express that discomfort and be like, oh, like basically, I don't want to be in a room. You you don't want to be in a room with somebody that you blinded. Yeah. Oh, how magnanimous of you, yeah. Prez. You, you know, like you you took his eye, dog. What the hell are you talking about? Um, like he is somehow wrong. All right. <laughs> also, a scene that I love is McNulty and Bunk with the witness to the Gantt murder. Do you think if you saw this guy again, I'd... ma'am, please don't be afraid. From where I was sitting, his back was to me. It's a very, very important take-home point. You guys, they're hostages. They're hostages in 
Watson and Compton and in South Baton Rouge and in Richmond and in Gary and in Baltimore um, and, in, and in Chicago, there are hostages to this. There are people that aren't involved. Uh, you guys are, people ride through these neighborhoods and what they think they see is everyone who's got a scheme. No, my friends, there are people, the majority of the people are trying to live their life from one day to the next and they're caught up in the middle of something that they don't even recognize and that they have no uh, participation in whatsoever, but they're still beholden to the rules. They're still beholden to the rules. That woman who's living her life, who saw that whole thing happen, uh, on the one side of it, she can't say anything because the, the, the laws that rule that neighborhood, they govern her safety. And on the other hand, with the police, they need her to say something so that they can put away one more person uh, in order to get what they need. That's a, the, the, the example of a human being that's caught in a cycle of exploitation from both sides and can't find a way out of it because the only thing that they're concerned with is safety, how to live a life, sun up, sun down, next day. And, and not be involved in what's going on in City Hall and not being going on and what's going on in the low rises and they're being exploited. And a, a lot of times in this show, uh, things kind of uh, vacillate back and forth from the cops to the street. Um, but every once in a while, uh, we get a, a look at the cost and who's paying the cost. And the person that's actually paying the cost for the drug war that's going on isn't Avon and them. It's not the cops. It's that old black lady right there. She pays that cost every day. Her safety, the trauma, all of that stuff. Um, when she moved into that neighborhood, it probably didn't look anything like that. She had to watch as it deteriorated into a war zone where she doesn't have a voice. Uh, and so when I see that scene and I see that she's decent, she knows exactly what they're to talk about. But as soon as they talk about doing any testifying, her demeanor completely changes because she knows if she wants to be able to pull them groceries home the next day, she can't do that. Yeah. I mean, it is. Uh, I'm, I'm glad they illustrated that part of it because I feel like whenever we talk about violence, particularly in inner cities uh, in urban America, period, that it's they it's always framed as if we we not just deserve the violence there, but that we want it. And that everybody there is a part of it, that everybody there is gaining from this. But it really is. These are communities that are under siege. There are victims beyond those just the victims of addiction, of violence and of the the other things that come as a side of um, a side effect of when you have uh, that level of drug trafficking and other um, criminal issues in that neighborhood. The the ramifications on, you know, people who have been there for years, people who are just regular tax paying, tax paying citizens, mm. because at the end, you know, we're, we're talking about the murder of a citizen who did, lit who did nothing. Right. You know, that was the, kind of the, the, no, 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 not of, who did nothing, but who did the right thing. Oh, right. Who did I, the yeah, right yeah, thing. Like, I, look, look, you right. guys, I know that I'm, uh, my brother's in here van talking to the police ain't the right thing and stuff like that. I get it. I understand, man. I, I grew up under the same rules. He, all that person did was, testify in the fact in, in a case where somebody lost their life he's not in the game 
He's not snitching on any of his cohorts. He's not snitching on any of his partners. I have my own views of snitching because of the way I was brought up. Um, but that's a citizen who witnessed a crime and reported a crime. That's the right thing to do. Now, do I have, uh, you know, uh, uh, like <laughs> notions about, eh, guys, Takashi 6 9 you're in the middle of a criminal conspiracy <laughs> with a bunch of people and then you roll on them in order to protect yourself? Yeah. yeah. That's, See, that's different. That's, that's different. different. That's that different. That ain't the same. Walking down the street, kid gets snatched up. Guess what Van going to do? <laughs> Walking down the street, somebody gets their purse snatched, run down the street. Officer, he went that way. Like, like you know what I'm saying? But if we rob a bank together and I get snatched up, I'm not saying nothing. But anything else, like totally different. Uh, uh, somebody gets taken advantage of and I see it. You know what I mean? I've heard people say before, if my kid got kidnapped, I'm not calling the police. I'm going to let the streets handle it. Man, you know what? The streets ain't going to handle the, it. The, 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 <laughs> the, the streets don't have any... What the, what the, what, what the, what the, the streets got? Why do we act like the streets are the Avengers? Like, why, they like, got the Avengers. The, the, look, I love <laughs> the, the streets. No disrespect to the streets, man. But the streets don't have any profilers and they ain't got no DNA labs. Sometimes you got to call somebody for some investigative tactics, okay? And that's all I'm saying. So I want to make sure Gant didn't do, Gant did the right thing. He saw a murder and he talked about the person that got killed. I get it. It's, 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 it's a tough take, but I understand it. <laughs> uh, my second favorite scene in this episode is Daniel's at the dinner party. Mm. 500 to plate fundraisers for a police lieutenant. Even in this city, that constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. And which member of the ticket has so energized you? The mayor? Uh, council president? The register of wills, maybe. <laughs> well, the mayor might recognize my song. For the rest, I pretty much need B of I photos. Uh, you're not wrong, Lieutenant. In this state, there's a thin line between campaign posters and photo arrays. <laughs> That's a very interesting scene because I think to this point, largely, Daniels has been depicted as a bit of a company man. He has had his moments um, where he is not and he stood on the side of, of, of right, um, if you will, and, and gone against chain of command. But for as much as he knows how to navigate the world of, uh, of the police ranks, this scene is important and good because it shows that he doesn't know anything outside of how to navigate that like politically he's kind of lost mm. and it's a it's a very um sobering moment for him because you know based off things that he said to his wife and, and the conversations they've had he clearly aspires to be something better he clearly aspires to move up as high as possible and burrell who's at this same dinner party this fundraiser reminds him that you're not going to get nothing done unless you know the names of the people in this room. And Daniels clearly doesn't. And not only does he not know the names of the people in the room, he doesn't know how to play their game. He also um, is more comfortable hanging with the blue collar, with the, with the drivers. They think he's a driver, right? So he's more comfortable and closer to that world than he is to the world where he aspires to move um, up the ranks. And then I think he also understands that it ain't just bootlicking that's going to get him to go up that ladder the way he wants. Oh, and something else about that scene. That's the scene where we meet the man. 
I got that later. Okay. Don't worry oh, about okay. It. Oh, <laughs> oh, I got you. Oh, that's coming. Okay. That's coming. Definitely. That is def- that's definitely coming. So I thought that was a, a, a really good scene uh, in terms of Daniels realizing his place. And I and I think that's what The Wire, this series, does such a good job of. They do such a good job of showing how somebody can be a boss and and very comfortable and easily navigate one world. But as soon as they step a, a foot or two outside the world they're used to, they know nothing. nothing. And uh, we saw that with Stringer. We saw that we, we've seen that with a number of characters who find themselves not really having the, the mental dexterity to be able to operate in multiple worlds. Uh, other favorite scenes, smaller scene is a, uh, a Herc and Carver arguing about who's Batman and who's Robin. Mm-hmm. Stash finding motherfuckers popped the package from nowhere. Who are you talking? Skinny black motherfucking that ass ugly knocko. White boy with the ball cap. The ones with John Bodie? Batman and Robin, yo. Hi. Bang on him, baby. Uh, I'm Batman. I don't think so. Batman's white. And Robin's black. Civil lawsuit one and two. Right. Um, because this gave me the perfect opportunity to once again tell people who seem to always forget this, Batman is not a superhero. He has no powers. I just, his power is being rich. That's not true. Thank you. His powers made rich. Not man. true. That is true. Okay. First of all, you're. Ag- I know he's the world's greatest detective. I got it. No, no, but no, he no. has all the things. No, you're you're against humankind when you say something like that. <laughs> let's just take. Let's just like just. I'm, I'm gonna right, real quick. Four second nerd break. I'm a nerd out real quick. Batman is a superhero, and he's and he uses the power of the human spirit and his dedication to human excellence in order to get these things done. Superman. Oh, I wake up and the sun gives me power. I fly real hard, shoot bullet. Huh? Sorry, I, I bullet tend to bi- define that bullet. by being a superhero. And guess what? Batman b- beat his ass. You know why? Because it's, <laughs> because because as as human being, he did. Dark Knight Strikes Back. He, no, he did. He beat his ass. Like it, it, yep. it, it like it, it. The reason the reason is is because as a human being, Batman has to rely on his keen insight, his mental acuity, all of these things, and he has to be perfect. A search for perfection is always the greatest superpower. Now, he can't fly, but he does fly. He doesn't have super strength, but he can move anything. All right? So I can shoot Batman just like I could anybody else. But you, I'm just saying, that's not can't. real super. But you can't. But only the thing is, you can't, though, because the suit that he's created is going to catch oh, that bullet. The, the armor. Yeah, you can't shoot him. See, look, you, you know what? Move on. No, 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 no. We don't simply, see, let me just say this before we put a pin on this and just expose our full nerdery. I rank the fact that Batman beat Superman right up there with Duke beating UNLV when they were going for their second championship. I rank it up there with some of the greatest nonsensical upsets. It doesn't make any sense that Batman on any planet should be able to beat Superman. That doesn't even make sense. All right, we're talking about somebody who possesses literally every possible superhuman ability in one person. And the fact that they just had to show you uh, insecure humans that you needed somebody to believe in. So you had to take a regular human to be basically somebody who's damn near immortal. Mm. I find that to give human beings a false sense of their own abilities. In a fight. Your strengths don't matter as much as your weaknesses do. And that's just a real fact. And and Superman has one glaring, ridiculously tough weakness. 
You're uh, in a fight. Uh, all the strengths matter. A fight is a, as good as your weaknesses are. I could give some kryptonite to my little brother. He's eight. And Superman going to turn green and fate like my mama. Faint, fall right over like my mama. Hey, Gavin, little brother, go give this to the big uh, man with the square jaw over there. As soon as he gets there, oh, fall over. Weaknesses. Batman knows how hate. to exploit them. It was just them. pure hate to give him <laughs> that kind of... It was just All hate. Right. I get it. He could be too perfect. I understand. I, I get how it is. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, Batman trip on somebody. He sprained his ankle. I'm a, you know, whatever. <laughs> So, okay. All right. All good. All, right. all good. We'll, nerd break we'll over. On. Nerd break over. Nerd break over. We'll move on. All right. You brought it up. So we'll we'll cover this part of the episode. Uh, introducing in this episode, uh, we meet, as you pointed out, the man, Senator Clay Davis. This is the first look at the senator. And uh, he is just laughing and having himself a good old time at this party. <laughs> Pop quiz. Um, city council? Eastside, maybe? State senator. Clay Davis from the 39th district. Vice chair of the budget committee. And by extension, we also meet Damian Price, a.k.a. Day Day, who is Clay Davis's driver. Who are you driving for? Marla Davis. Mm, mm, mm. I love to crack this hair crib. Mm. Yeah. Good day's work. Good day's work. What about the lime system? Shit, I wire that weak ass thing back on itself. Pull the truck up, bust through those French doors. That'll work. Yes, indeed. Said most of this good shit around the way, but some of it, like that art and all, I might have to run it up New York. Name's Damien Price, but I mostly go by Day Day. Senator Davis. But I mostly go by Lieutenant. Let's go over some of our file this away for laters, if you will. That's a big one. You definitely want to file away Day Day and uh, Clay Davis for sure. Also, I think uh, you want to file away, uh, you know, Bubbles stepping up to take the chip uh, when the person at the meeting says, hey, anybody been clean? 24 hours or sincere desire to live. I don't think Johnny heard that second part. So when he reminds them that they got high this morning, that morning, he doesn't realize that Bubbles is basically kind of putting something out in the atmosphere about what he wants for his life. And this, it wasn't just about him lying about being clean or anything like that, because the guy, again, also says, or a sincere desire to live. Also, Phelan predicting that ah. Robin will be a judge in 10 years. Mm. Mm. I had that one. Interesting prediction, mm -hmm. right? And my last one that I had was Orlando propositioning D'Angelo about a potential deal. Definitely want to file that one away as well. I love how you stole all of my file this away for later. That's really? exactly I had. I thought for sure dude, that you, I had, you would have I more had, than that. I had Phelan. I had the prophecy to Rhonda. I had Orlando. Uh, drip, drip, curl, curl, man. Um, I, like I, drip, drip, curl. Drip, is that drip, your nickname for him? Orlando? Is drip, drip, curl, curl. I love how Orlando looked so out of place when he came down to the pit. Orlando looks like every other strip club manager. When you when you decide to manage a strip club, because I know they have. I don't know if y'all know this, and I'm not gonna say, but there are specific stores that exist just for the girls to go get their clothes from. Like it's not the a lot of the strip like Forever Twenty One. But yeah, but like. 
it's just there's just strip club stores where they where the where like like you you know sometimes you go there and you see strip club just dancers waiting outside waiting for the latest technologies and clear boots. You know what I'm saying? Like like it's some Jordans coming out. There's strip club stores. I wonder if there's a strip club manager store because everybody that manages the strip club dresses like Orlando dresses. Everyone. They all got a weird tribal type of chain. They all the bracelets. The all the everything that he has, they nailed that character. But yeah, that was gonna be my father's away uh, for later moment, um, uh, kind of deal. And I think that the the conversation, uh, for one that maybe you didn't mention between Day Day and Lieutenant Daniels, is of course a father's away from later moment, uh, because that's something that's gonna lead in the in the short term, um, to Daniels knowing a little bit more about kind of what's going on and about the money trail. Uh, of the organized uh, drug rings of West Baltimore. What were some of your favorite quotes from this episode? One is, motherfucker think he can pit me for a candy bar. Might be tomorrow, might not be for a while. But when you think you're ready for something different, you give me a call. I'll remember. Motherfucker thinking he can pit me over a candy bar. I love that love one. That. <laughs> love that. Like, that, like that, that little random little game, got your Reese's Cup. Your, your tea in the can, tea in the can. I want a Reese's, yo. Peanut butter cup. Drink. Tea in the can. Tea in the can. There's no way to describe like a, a Lipton brisk iced tea more gangster. Tea in the can. Because if you, if, cause, if cause, I want a Reese's, yo. Oh, a Reese's, yo. Cause like, cause, cause, peanut butter cup. Right, yeah. Because if I say I want, I'd like a Reese's peanut butter cup and a brisk iced tea. I don't sound gangster, but if I say Reese's, yo, tea in a can, I'm like, okay, damn, child, I'll, I'll go get you the refreshments that you want. Yeah, which I believe Carver notes, right? He says, like, who orders a meal that hard? Yeah, tea in a can. <laughs> like, um, tea in a can. And then my other favorite one is easy. Lack of pussy. <laughs> um, lack of pussy will change even a good man's demeanor. Said by the great bunk. Lack of pussy will change even a good man's demeanor. I'm sorry, but that's true. <laughs> well, as far as we know, or at least, uh, you know, as far as we know that he just kind of was looking. But you know what I find interesting is that as soon as he kind of looked at that woman, you know, and basically mentally undressed uh, her, it was interesting to me that McNulty immediately piped up and asked, where's Nadine? Now, I don't know if you get these vibes, but does it seem to you that McNulty is very judgmental of people's cheating, even though he or I'll just say Bunks in particular. He seems kind of judgmental about the idea of Bunk cheating, even though he himself is a cheater. Oh, I'm not going to give anything away, but we are going to see that in plain as day in the very next episode. And yes, it's weird. Jimmy has. And remember now, <clears throat> we only see Jimmy cheat, actually cheat a couple of times in the show. Actually, maybe ever only once in the show is Jimmy ever attached and then he cheats. We know that he cheated with Rhonda before, but either he learned something from what he did or he's one of those people, and I hate people like that, that do they dirt but don't want to help you shovel yours. Like so, But yeah, that, that is, that's a very astute observation. He seems a little disappointed in Bunk in that scene yeah. and other times when Bunk does the same thing. Yeah, very much so. Uh, in terms of favorite quotes, 
Um, and I guess since we're on the topic, when Phelan tells McNulty talking about Rhonda, I would love to throw a fuck into her. Throw it. I would love to throw a fuck into her. I didn't know one could throw a fuck into somebody. Yeah. That was that was a, a new a new one for me. And I thought uh, Waylon. Now I know I got one more high left in me, but I doubt very seriously if I have one more recovery. That's a bar. That's a bar right there. It's a bar right there. And probably the most famous quote from this uh, uh, episode is a man must have a code. A man must have a code. Oh, no doubt. Omar provided the best word of the episode, which was constabulating. That's if I happen to be constabulating like y'all. Love Omar, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, like that's probably the most iconic quote. A man must have a code. Uh, Omar going to drop another one uh, uh, next episode as well. But um, yeah, man, whenever Omar is on the screen, you get two things. You get violence or wisdom. That's it. Mm. Like Omar, uh, Omar, you get you get violence or wisdom. He either being smart or he being fierce. Love that character. What aged the best from this episode? Hmm. To me, what aged the best is our our boy Kevin Johnson, the kid, as we said, that Prez hit and, and half blinded, or blinded rather, in one eye. When Daniels, uh, you alluded to this earlier in the podcast, when Daniels tries to kind of coach him, talk to him on some real shit, offer some mentorship, you know, extend him some kindness. You want to do something else with the rest of your years? You come see me. He rejects it immediately. And I thought that was something that's just real because there are a lot of shows that have or aspire to have uh, to talk about some of the same issues that they talk about in The Wire. And they always manage to to have some neat little bow around helping a kid or helping somebody who's struggling or helping somebody in that life. And they always make it seem as if it's so easy to separate somebody from the only life that they've known. Mm-hmm. And I thought that dose of realism of like, yo, this kid is too deep in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because he got hit in the face with the butt of a gun, that's not going to knock some sense into him literally. Right. right? And uh, Daniels is kind of patronizing him in many respects by looking at him like a charity case. Like, OK, maybe what will make up for the fact that one of my officers assaulted him will be if I extend him some kind of a quote way out. Like what? And so. I was glad that they didn't take an easy, cheap opportunity to put a neat little ending on what is a much more complicated situation. So I thought that interaction, how that situation resolved or didn't resolve itself was what aged the best. I, All right. Now you tell me what, what, what aged the worst. The cost of the Reese's and the tea in the can. He gives them $2. And I don't know if you guys have gone to one of these vending machines. Uh, lately. Even back, even back then. I, I, even back I, then. I, I guess I, I can't remember back then. But it, it, if you go to a vending machine now, be it at the Beverly Center, Glendale Galleria, all places that are funny to go walk walk through now because it's ghost town. Uh, but if you go to one of these vending machines, you have to pretty much take out a loan before you get a Gatorade. Like you have to go and you li- literally go to Capital One. And see what the financing is on a Gatorade. And to forget about any types of snacks. I don't know how this is around the country. But here in LA, like $2 can't even... That's the down payment on something from one of these vending machines. He get $2 and he got the tea and the Reese's. I was thinking to myself, man, you better give that boy two more bucks. Three more bucks, maybe. 
I, I've, li- I've literally been to places where it's like three bucks for a Gatorade in the vending machine. So that age, the worst. And I think about the olden days, you know, when I could get gas for like 98 cents in Baton Rouge and stuff like that. But shit, the olden days is back because I don't know if you looked at these gas prices, man. I'm cruising. Ain't real low. I'm cruising around the city, Jamil. It's turn back the clock. But uh, but yeah, I think I thought that that age the worst. Um, there's something else. Great observation. There's something else that they do in this episode, but they do it in the next episode too. I'm going to save it. But that age the worst as well. But I thought that that age the worst for me. Look, I'm so old. I remember where you could take a dollar to the store and get three things. Oh. At least three. Okay. Well, Lord, I remember that time. Like ice, three things. Like ice, ice. And you can get some ice in a cup. To, to drink and drive. <laughs> yes, you could. All for uh, under a dollar. Right. Thank you very much. Shout out to the Detroit party stores. Uh, before we get to who won this particular episode, um, Bodie did not spit in this episode. No I spit. want people to know. Mm-hmm. McNulty does catch a body, as in a worn body. Hello, Rhonda. Rhonda. Bunk goes through a cigar. What would you assess their blood alcohol content to be at the bar? Oh, they got... They were still... They were still standing upright. They, they were slurring. They, like, but Bunk was Bunk was kind of against the bar because it wasn't his bar. Like, he didn't like the scenery there. Ah, right. they, they they were on the on the on the tipsy level. Uh, well, well, point. Oh, they were definitely uh, on tipsy. Point six, maybe. Point six. Dude, they way over the limit. There's no. You think way. they're over the limit? I don't know if they're Hell over. The, yes. I don't know if they're they over, over the, the limit. limit. I don't know if they, they over, over the, the limit, man. Oh my goodness! He called maybe he called Buck what an old whore. <laughs> it's about oh at least you... no, I forgot. Yeah, because the the scene comes yeah. back. Take your fucking money back. Oh no, this is take it back, you old whore. Yo, whore, I'll pay for it. They're definitely over the limit. Yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, they were I was thinking about because they go somewhere and then they come back to that scene. Oh, uh, yo, I, I got it. Nah, yo, whore. Yeah, you, you know what? You're, you're right because early when they first were in that scene, they seem they seem below a point eight. Yeah, but after when they come back. They have clearly and when he, enjoyed. When he calls him the old whore, they actually get one more round. He goes, "Can we do another one of these?" And he and, he, right. he, and you know, you know, you really drunk when you pay with the crumpled up money. When you just throw the money on the bar, disrespect the bartender like he's shaking ass. Like it, it, so, yeah. So I they definitely. So I'm gonna go. I, not not super for these guys. I don't know. No. What, what do you think? They can still for them. They can still drive home yeah, point, and be totally fine and, nine, and not hit anything. Point nine. <laughs> Point nine, yeah. <laughs> I think they might have reached double digits. Not deep into it, like a point one oh ish. You know, like I think they're they're right about there. Um, and and who knows where they might be after the crumpled up ones. Uh, and and matter of fact, maybe we should use that as the litmus test. Like, how many crumpled up ones drunk are they, or crumpled up money drunk right. uh, are they in this scene? A uh, little piece of trivia for you guys that are listening. So, uh, we talked about Waylon, Steve Earle. Um, Real life addict, been clean since '94. Also, real life singer, and he is the one who sang the Wire theme song in season five. Steve Earle. Oh. That raspy, soulful voice you hear is that of the man you are just introduced to in this series. Finally, Van, who won this episode? Before we get to who won this episode, uh, I want to point something out for you. I know where you're going. What am I about to say? Because I have the only reason I'm conserving is because I have an epic one for the next one. Okay, epic one. Because you know, because you, because you know, in this episode, Stringer Bell fuckboy alert. Right. I know. You, you you realize that he didn't that Stringer Bell actually made a fantastic call in this episode, 
It was Stringer. What? It was Stringer Bell who told in a in in to, who told them to rip the payphones out of the uh, of uh, uh, of their places in the pit. Stringer Bell came in and he's sitting there and he's talking. Right? He looks around. He takes one look with his keen drug dealer skillful sense eyes. He looks around and he says, "Yo, tell them motherfuckers up." What? Tell about them phones. He makes that call on the spot. I loved it. When I watched it, I was like, she's somewhere upset right now. She must feel the way LeBron fans felt when Kobe was just going to work in the finals. They're like, ah, should have been our guy. What happened? Like, yeah, Stringer Bell. I'm, you know what? From, from now on, this podcast is going to be about a battle for me for the integrity of Russell Stringer Bell. And I just want you to say, that's it. I just want you to say, String made a good call. That's all. String- You're going to talk me into a, a, a fuckboy moment. No, no. You're going to talk me into it. it. You're going to talk me just into it. Just say, String made a good call. It's okay. String made a good call. So you want me to give somebody credit for taking care of their own kids. That's what you want me to do right now. That's what I feel like you want me to do. That's not, that's unfair. Like, I, I feel like you want me to do this because you realize that wasn't exactly you know, uh, Ocean's Eleven. Like, he ain't Danny Ocean in this piece, all right? He ain't taking down whole casinos with his grand plans, all right? Ripping out the payphones is the least he could do, especially since, oh, by the way, they still trying to get from up under his poorly planned, poorly executed snitch call. It's no snitch, I, I know, but But look, he realized uh, that there was no snitch, so... The, oh, the, did he finally realize? He, he realized there was no stage. So the next thing is they got to be listening to us. That's all I'm saying. Captain Look, I'm, I'm not going to stay on it. I'm not going to stay on it. But uh, as far, right. as, as, far right. as who won this episode, uh, you know who I have winning this episode? And we didn't even really talk too much about him in this episode. I got a weird one. If this matches mine, I'm going to be like, Van is got my place bugged. What is it? I got Santangelo. I do too. <laughs> I have Santangelo. <laughs> That's exactly who I have in this one. Hey, Jimmy. We got to talk, man. It's about Rawls. By the way, I guess we did. Um, I think we might have overlooked this one. The We Love This Show, but these are closely related. So, you know, if you, you have one, definitely share. I thought the Madame LaRue stuff, pointless. Totally pointless. But I'm going to tell you why I liked it. To me, this was the... Okay, so what we're talking about in terms of the Madame LaRue thing early on, Santangelo... So there's a... And, and we might have skipped it in this episode. There's a huge, huge thing that happens in this episode with Santangelo. Rawls is recruiting Santangelo to keep tabs on the major crimes unit, right? You're not helping me out here, Sandy. I'm sitting here watching case after case stack up, right? These are all yours and they're all open, Sandy. That's not a fair assessment, Major. Fair? What the fuck is fair? I got a detective out there, unsupervised, running his own special ops unit, burning me every chance he gets. It's not my job to fuck another cop. Not your job. Tell you what, detective. I'm going to be so fucking fair, I'm going to give you the choice. Either bring me something on McNulty, or go out there and do your job. Major Pick a murder and solve so, it. So, knowing that he's under... All of this type of pressure, Landsman gives him the, the number of this psychic, and the psychic is supposed to help him. He's going to go to the psychic, and the psychic is going to deliver him a murder. Madam fucking LaRue, Jay. Better men than you have turned to this lucky lady in their dark night at dead ends. <laughs> You're not serious. 
I don't joke when it comes to Madame LaRue. She has an unexplainable gift in matters of death investigation. She transcends the rational. It's one of the only times in The Wire where I can think of a comedic subplot. Like, it's not a comedic subplot show. It's not a show that gives you a B plot or a C plot that's just for comedy like you get on um, some other shows. But this is actually a comedic subplot, a lighthearted subplot, uh, as this as Santangelo goes to Madame LaRue. You're Irish, no? Italian. Go to the victim's grave. Bury the statue. Wait an hour, a full hour, no shortcuts. Then dig it up. Go straight home. When you go to bed, hold it to your ear. And he tells me who did it? And it ends up that he does get a clearance, not from her, but from the work of Bunk and McNulty. Madame fucking LaRue. I gotta thank you, Jaybird. You saved my fucking life here. The only thing I can't figure is I asked for help in the Lindsay case, not this one. These are the guys that saved your ass right here. I liked that because of that. You're right. It's not, it's a we love this show, but because The Wire is not something that deals in mysticism or types of situations like that. It's a very realistically grounded show. And it, it was also unnecessary, I thought, that if that's taken out of this, I don't think we miss anything. And I think, um, you know, him being frustrated, uh, you know, made fun of, that kind of thing, Ross putting the pressure on him. All those things could all still exist without kind of out of nowhere just throwing in this psychic. And I, again, I realized it was part, it was a prank. And, you know, and as you said, which is so true, it's like the wire doesn't really do that. And maybe because they don't really do that, it just seemed kind of like wasted moments to me. So yeah, but, that but was, was kind of my but big, I, biggest gripe. But I will this. say this about it. The journey that he goes through in order to get that, and then it does come full circle when he is ready to thank the psychic for the clearance, it crystallizes to him uh, that he needs to talk to McNulty um, about what Rawls is planning. It crystallizes the moment. So they give you a little fat and then they fry the fat off and give you the bacon at the end of the episode. And I will say about that, uh, that scene is a very powerful scene, which is the reason why for me, Santangelo wins the episode. Uh, because it shows his conscious, despite his, you know, um, his, uh, his 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 career driven um, path, his career leanings, his career preservation, self preservation. His conscience won't let him fuck over Jimmy uh, anymore. He has to come clean about it. That's why I say Santangelo, uh, a, a wire C lister, a C lister, was actually able to come through and win the episode. In my opinion, yeah, no, I, I agree with that, and I think. Um... It was what's interesting, though, is I think what also kind of gets to him is that Jimmy McNulty and Bunk um, also, they look out for him when they didn't really have to, that they extend him a kindness that, you know, when he that he wasn't going to extend to McNulty in particular, like he could have told him at any moment, like, yo, man, just on some police solidarity shit, like, yo, Rawls is really about to try to really fry your ass. And instead, he chose, obviously, to try to preserve his own career, try to stay afloat, survive. And, you know, McNulty has got a major case that he's got to solve or he knows his ass is in, com- is in trouble. And even while doing that, he still said, you know what, let me look out for my man because I know this is something that he needs to clear. And he didn't obviously wasn't even completely unaware of what was going on behind the scenes. So 
because Santangelo, despite being fairly worthless as as a police officer, mm-hmm. that he did something that had a significant ramifications, which helps McNulty. I don't know. This is not a realization. It's a realization that McNulty struggles with throughout this entire series of The Wire is and, and Lester has tried to tell him in big and small ways that you do realize you doing the right thing. You pouring your entire life. You losing your family. All that shit is not going to be worth it at the end of the day. Yeah. That this job is going to cost you everything and give you nothing in return. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of another one of those moments where McNulty is reminded that, um, you know, his wit, his charms, his smarts, him thinking he's the best detective on the force. None of that shit is going to save him from what's for what's eventually coming for him. So, yes, Santangelo, hands down. Uh, the winner of this particular episode. Well, I think that is all that we have um, for, I know, right, for episode seven. Clearly you're home for Batman and Superman takes because that's what you listen for, (laughs) obviously, (laughs) right? But uh, don't you worry, episode eight, trust me, I got one for Stringer. I was, I, I just wanted to conserve my energy because in episode eight, mm-hmm. yes, I have I have all the disgust for Russell Stringer Bell. So thanks, you, uh, you guys, again, for supporting this podcast, listening to this episode. Uh, keep watching The Wire. Keep listening to us. And we'll see y'all later. <laughs>